Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm in the studio with Andy Green, and we thought today we'd talk about Martin Scorsese's new documentary about Bob Dylan and the Rolling Thunder tour. And we have a couple people we're going to be talking to who are actually part of that tour. We're going to start with Louis Kemp, who's mentioned in the movie, and Louis was Bob's good friend from childhood. They went to summer camp together. And Louis was the producer of the Rolling Thunder tour. And Louis also has a new book coming out about his friendship and time with Bob Dylan. It's called Dylan and Me, 50 Years of Adventures. And Louis, do we have you? I'm here. I really enjoyed the book. Thanks for being here. Of course. Did you get a chance to see the documentary? Because it's obviously not quite a documentary. There's a bit of fiction in there. Yes, you're right. Yeah, I saw it actually uh, on uh, Wednesday night. Of course, I was at all the concert so i knew how amazing the shows were and the performance footage on the documentary you know captured all that and and that was great so for people who don't know and andy wrote a story kind of breaking this down there's a number of fictional elements inserted into the movie one is the purported director of all the old documentary footage who did not exist that was actually bet Midler's husband playing a part Yes. Yes. And it must have been bizarre. I'm very curious for you as a real person <laughs> involved in the real event, what you made of, of all that fiction. Yes. Well, I found it amusing. But at the same time, I thought it took away from the realistic integrity of the tour because those three talking heads that are outlined in that article are purely fictitious. You know, they weren't there. The things they said had no bearing on the reality of the tour. So I guess it was an attempt by... Scorsese to add some level of artistic mystique to the whole thing. But from my point of view, you know, it took away from the pureness and the reality of what really happened back then. I mean, for the record, as Andy wrote, Sharon Stone talks about being on the tour as a teenager. She was not. She's just a Bob Dylan fan who they recruited to play this part. And then the politician is not real either. Right. Or the that, That's right. Yeah, that's right. I'll, that, the guy who was the promoter, the guy who claimed to be... Uh, the director of the footage, the movie, all that is fiction. Right. The promoter's a real executive for, I think, Paramount right. now. And the film shows... Yeah, but he wasn't involved with the tour right. at all. Yeah. And the film shows so many great scenes that they don't give context to. So, Louis, I would love to hear the story of the Mahjong tournament and why Dylan, why he's yeah. playing music to these old women that are playing Mahjong. <laughs> yeah, that was very funny. After we left New York City where we were doing the pre-tour rehearsals and we were doing the administrative work we went up to i think it's called seacrest up in the cape close to uh, where plymouth was we found a resort there that was off season and we staged there and we uh, did some rehearsals up there and it, as it turns out uh, they had booked a mahjong tournament to be there at the same time the people said don't worry they won't interfere with you at all we said fine and uh it turned out there's just this delightful group of older ladies who were there for this Mahjong tournament. It was a real contrast between the Rolling Thunder people and, and the Mahjong ladies, but everybody got along good. And uh, <laughs> it was really interesting, the dynamics there. And, and I, at some point, I can't remember whose idea it was, but somebody <laughs> said, let's put out a little something for the, the Mahjong ladies. They had no idea who anybody, you know, well, some of them knew who Bob was, but most of them, this was totally outside their element, you know. And uh, 
So they, and some of us captured on, on that footage, which were, I think the manager of the hotel came in and said something while the tournament was going on, said something to the fact, we have a little treat for you ladies today. We arranged a special entertainment and uh, he introduced uh, Ellen Ginsberg and, uh, and Bobby Zimmerman as two entertainers that they booked to entertain them. And Alan, you know, read some poetry and did uh, some of his shtick and then Bobby, you know, you saw part of what he did on the footage. And they were very polite, you know, as you could see there, they're watching and, and then they politely clapped afterwards. And, you know, for those of us who were part of the tour, we were just cracking up, you know. <laughs> Now, in your book, you describe the origins of the tour and also that Bob kind of left you hanging to the last second. You told him that unless he gave you an, an answer, you were going to head out of town. He literally called you on the dot of the moment that you said you were going to leave. So that's all very dramatic. But I'm just curious if you could put this into some context of Bob's life. Why did he want to do it and why did he want to do it in this very unique way as sort of a, a carnival kind of thing. What was your impression on all that? I think the carnival thing goes back to our roots, you know. We lived in northern Minnesota. There always was a, a carnival, too, that would come through our community. You know, it was always very exciting for us to go to the carnival, you know. And the carnival was there for a day or two, and then it was gone. And it was like, wow, what was that? And, and it, you know, left a, an excitement and impression on us. So that was in our DNA and uh, so I had come back from Alaska uh, doing my uh, salmon season up there. And when I came back to Duluth, Bob called me and said, come down to the farm, let's hang out. So I went, and uh, that's outside Minneapolis. And uh, he told me I'd just come back from New York. He played me some of the songs from which would become the Desire album that was released about six months later. And many of those songs he played on the Rolling Thunder. And then he told me that he wanted to go out and do a tour that was much different than anything he'd ever done or anybody else had ever done. And he had this musical, uh, minstrel, roadshow, carnival-type theme that he wanted to orchestrate it around, where everything was just casual, fun, fluid, and something that would be fun for the audiences and go to places that... He would never normally go, or most big acts would never go, small venues and all the way places. So the real fans would get a chance to have good seats, and we would come to them. And that it would be kind of a mysterious thing that we would just break the shows a few days ahead of time. No advertising. We'd just send a couple pre-show people into town with handbills, and uh, whoever came, came, you know. And uh, <laughs> then... As we were throwing this back and forth between us, like two little kids, you know, feeding off each other. Yeah, let's do this. Let's do that. And yeah, let's not even tell the people on the tour where it's going. Yeah, let's keep them in mystery <laughs> too. You know? you know, you could see us like two mischievous kids back. How we were when we were kids, we were mischievous kids. But now we are adults, both successful in our own right. And we kind of reverted back to those inclinations. And then it just evolved from there, you know. Yeah. And we fine-tuned it. And he had told me when he was in New York, he had mentioned this idea to uh, a few promoter types there. And they said, no, no, you're too big for that. Uh, you got to do another tour like uh, you did in uh, 74 with big halls and arenas and outdoor and jets and, you know, go all over the place and make a lot of money. And he looked at me and said, you know, I did that in 74. I don't want to do that now. And I had been on Tour 74 with him, so I saw the whole thing. And he said that to me. He said, you saw it. He said, that was fine. But this 
I want to do something totally different right. for three, four days. Towards the end of that time, he asked me, he said, Louie, I want you to produce this tour. And uh, he said, because you get it, and I trust you. Wow. So that's what happened. Now, the film doesn't mention Mick Ronson much, who was Bowie's guitarist. I'm curious to hear your memories of him, because he had just come off a huge Ziggy Stardust tour, and this was such a different kind of show. So how did Mick play on the tour, and just I tell your memories of him being there? Yeah, well, Mick, uh, Mick is an incredible musician and a real down-to-earth guy. Everybody liked him. He was kind of kept to himself. He was kind of a quiet guy you know, when he wasn't playing, reserved sort of guy, but... He was a true rock and roller. I mean, this guy was amazing, you know. And, you know, when he played, I mean, you could see that. And as a person, he was a real gentleman and well-liked by everybody. Bob seems, in many ways, very happy in a lot of this footage and re- incredibly engaged. And as Ginsburg says, it was the rumor was going on that the inspired Bob Dylan was back. And he does seem very inspired. At the same time, was he a little bit lost? Because he was heading away from this domesticity that had been his life for the past, you know, eight years and heading towards an entirely new phase. It was also, it was the beginning, as you say in your book, in some ways it was the beginning of the never-ending tour because he said to you at the end of the tour, like, I'm just going to keep going. How would you kind of define where his head was at? Yeah, I think I'm Rolling Thunder 1. He was still family-wise, he was fine. You're talking mid-75, he didn't get divorced for a couple of years. And he had Sarah and the kids join him on the tour at a few different points. But he just wanted to go out and uh, mingle with the real fans in a real way and not be the not the star treatment as you noticed in the movie he was driving <laughs> on many legs of the trip he drove his own uh, van and trailer there he was just one of the boys you know and that's how he wanted to be treated and that's how he he acted on the tour there was no star nonsense or anything like that he was totally emerged as a part of the tour family and enjoying it as you could see tell me one or two memories uh, before we let you go that you felt like weren't captured in the movie from that tour. What did you miss the most? Yeah, I don't think it captured the camaraderie that there was between all the people on the tour. It was like a family. I think you could hear that in the interviews that came out with Alan and Joan Baez, maybe some with Roger too. But that's what it was. And uh, I don't think that came across to the extent that it existed. And it was just like one big happy fun time you know and the crowds were loving it the people on the tour were playing off each other's energy you know these shows were four to five hours long i mean it wasn't a concert it was a review like the title says and the length of the show would depend on a given night on the fluidity that developed between the people even though we had a pecking order of you know who'd come out and do what and there was a lot of bad living going on and when we go to a particular town where some entertainer would join us. Bob would very often bring them on stage and they would do sets, you know, which would just add to the review aspect of the show, you know, and the people would love it. Yeah, and the last thing I'll ask you is there's a great scene captured where you and Bob kind of bum rush Walter Yetnikoff, who was the head of Columbia Records at the time. And what's left out of the movie, but it's in your book, is you had just been there earlier, a couple of days earlier or something, and basically convinced Yetnikoff to give you and Bob $100,000 as tour support, which was unheard of at the time. So that's why Yetnikoff kind of gives you a look and says, oh, it's you, you know, and you said I brought a friend this time because you had just somehow pulled off that, which was uh, pretty impressive. Yes, well, you read the book and I detailed that in the book. And what happened was <clears throat> two days before, I said to the lady who ran Bob's business office, I said, I want to go up to Columbia 
Records and meet with the president. Uh, who's the president of Columbia Records? I had no idea. I didn't know his name. You know? And I just knew that was Bob's label. You know? uh, and I'm going to see if I can get some tour support. She said, well, they don't do that. She said, I've tried before. I said, well, it doesn't hurt to try again. And she just laughed at me. She didn't laugh with me. She laughed at me like I was some naive fish guy from Duluth that didn't know how the entertainment business worked, you know. And I was, but that naivety got us 100000 bucks. Uh, <laughs> so you know, she gave me the number. I called up there, talked to his assistant, told her who I was, asked if I could come see Walter so we could coordinate this upcoming tour with Columbia. And so I went up there. And we had this meeting, which is in the book, but not in the movie. And uh, I guess the best way to, to put it in, in straightforward terms is that I shook him down for a hundred grand to support the tour because he didn't want to do it. You know, I said that's fine. You can do it. You don't have to. But if you if you're not going to support Bob on this tour, because uh, this is not a money tour, this is a people tour, which is going to be good for Columbia as well. I said that's fine. But don't expect any itinerary from us where we're going to be. Don't expect any tickets. In those days, the label would hand out tickets to the DJs. For sure. And Yednikoff, I've read his book. He was a tough character, so I think you deserve some congratulations for that one. So Louis Kemp, Bob's old friend, has a new book coming out called Dylan and Me, 50 Years of Adventures. And you're captured a little bit in uh, Scorsese's Rolling Thunder review, but it was good to get uh, some of the actual story. And Louis, thanks for being with us. So I want to take a moment and talk about Vivid Seats. Staying at home is great, but eventually you just got to get out of the house. Whether you go out to see your favorite band or go cheer on your favorite team in person, you got to get out of the house. You got to have a night out. And with Vivid Seats, you can attend the concert of your choice, the sports event of your choice, whatever event you're looking for at a great price. Vivid Seats is the top source for tickets for all the live events you might want to go to. On their site, you can sort by price or look for seats in the section and row of your choice. You can pick the seat you want. To make things even better, Vivid Seats is giving listeners an exclusive promo code for new customers to receive 10% off your first ticket order to save even more money. Just go to the App Store or Google Play and download the Vivid Seats app. First-time customers can use promo code ROLLINGSTONE, that's R-O-L-L-I-N-G-S-T-O-N-E, for 10% off your first Vivid Seats order. Every purchase is backed by a 100% buyer guarantee, from the biggest concerts and games to the hottest theater and more. Vivid Seats has it all. Download the app and enter promo code ROLLINGSTONE for 10% off your first order on Vivid Seats. Make a memory that lasts a lifetime and let Vivid Seats help you get to your favorite live event. This is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm in the studio with Andy Green, and we're talking about Martin Scorsese's excellent new documentary about the Rolling Thunder review with Bob Dylan and a unique cast of all-star guests. We have one of them with us right now, the legendary Roger McGuinn of the Birds. Hey, how are you, man? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Not bad. Thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. So uh, there's obviously a, a lot we could talk about with you, but I guess the subject of the moment is the Rolling Thunder review. And you and Bob were obviously always close. And, and just not long before this, you had just recorded with him. You were on Knocking on Heaven's Door. But how did your involvement with this particular tour come about? How did you get involved? Well, first of all, he came over to my house and we were talking and he said he wanted to do something like a circus. <laughs> and Bob Dylan was saying he wanted to do something like a circus. It's like something different, you know, it's like, wow, man, we're going to do something interesting. So then that was all he said about it. 
And then I was on the road with my band. I had some dates booked in North America, and uh, I had a couple of weeks off. So I went to the village where I used to live, and I loved it. And I was hanging out and ran into Larry Sloman. And um, we went to Chinatown and had some Chinese food. And he said, I think Bob's at the other end. I said, well, let's go see. So we went to the other end, and Jacques Levy and Bob were in a back room, and they were drinking brandies. And, you know, they, they got up and said, hey, Roger, we are just talking about you. And, and the drinks went flying. It was like an old Western movie. And he said, we're <laughs> putting this tour together, and we'd like you to go out on it. I said, oh, man, I don't know if I can. I got all these dates booked with my band. I didn't want to get sued by the promoters. And the next day, Rasto called up and said, do you remember last night? Hmm. <laughs> and I said, yeah. He said, well, you turned Bob Dylan down for a tour. You know, that wasn't a real, real good idea. <laughs> I, said, I said, you're right, you're right. So I called up my agent and postponed the dates that I had booked with my band. And I signed up for Rolling Thunder, and it was one of the best two-month vacations and, uh, you know, like parties I've ever been to. Mm. It's funny, you mentioned Jack Lee, and one of the interesting things about the documentary is that it introduces people like that and never identifies them for an audience who might not know who they are. And Jack obviously was doing a a very interesting thing, which is that he was co-writing lyrics with Bob Dylan, and that's what, you know, the songs on the Desire album. Well, I thought it was great. You know, I loved the work they did together. Bob was a fan of Jacques writing because he liked Chestnut mare uh, that Jacques and I wrote together. And so, you know, he and Bob wrote some great right. stuff. And I, I was really, really enamored with it. I thought that was wonderful. And uh, Jacques was the musical director on Bowling Thunder, something he didn't really get credit for in the Scorsese film. He didn't give him credit for what he was doing, but he was in a lot of scenes. I was just looking through, <laughs> I've got it on Final Cut Pro, and I was just looking through frame by frame to see what <laughs> Quite a few pictures of Jacques in there, but maybe once or twice they get a little visual credit to it, says Jacques Levy. But he did a lot. He was the guy who kind of designed the show. He figured out who's going to go on when and what songs they were going to do. And Jacques and I even wrote songs on the tour that I ended up doing in the show eventually. So he was a big part of it. And I remember uh, I was talking to his son, Julian, and he's saying, oh, you know, I saw the movie and I really missed seeing more of Jacques. So that's something. And Jack had come to you. He was doing like a, a theatrical project, and that's where Chestnut Mare came from, correct? He, and that led to Bob's collaboration with Jack. Exactly. He showed up at the Fillmore East, and he had just heard the Bird Sweetheart of the Rodeo, and it gave him the idea of doing a country rock musical that he was going to base loosely on Heinrich Ibsen's Pure Gant, which is a very bizarre combination of ideas. But he move it from Norway in the 1840s to the western United States. And there's a scene in Pure Gant where he goes off a cliff on a reindeer. And so we moved that to the western United States, and the lead character went off a cliff on a chestnut mare. <laughs> I'll just use the opportunity to give a plug for the Birds Untitled album, which is a really unique and uh, slightly maybe underrated uh, Birds album that I've always loved. And that song's on there, along with Lover of the Bayou, which is another Jack Levy collaboration. That's an absolutely fantastic yes, song. And, well, we did that as sort of a satire on uh, the late Dr. John the Night Tripper. You know, we, we love this stuff. and. Yeah, so it was like catfish pie in a gree-gree bag. I'm the lover of the bayou. We're trying to get that imagery of Louisiana and, you know, kind of a swamp thing going. And then I believe Tom Petty did a great cover of that with Mudcrutch, I think. Yes, I don't know. he did. Yeah. Yeah, he did. I got to do it with him a couple of years ago when Mudcrutch appeared in New York, and I, I sat in with him a couple of nights at the Webster Hall, I think it was, and it was fun. 
Mm. I've gotten slightly afield from Rolling Thunder, but how could I not with Roger McGuinn on the phone? In fact, let's hear just a, a tiny bit of uh, Lover on the Bayou. How can we not? I'm the lover of a bayou. Tell me about the first couple nights on the tour and just getting into it and realizing what it was going to be like. What was all that like? Okay, well, we were all hanging out at Gertie's Folk City, and then we went up to Ginsburg apartment and we were hanging out up there and playing some songs and it was just sort of a jam and then we went to SIR and we started uh, rehearsals but they weren't really rehearsals they're more more jam sessions and he'd assembled Scarlett and he had Howie Myers and Rob Stoner all these guys and uh, Mick Ronson so bizarre it was just really fun I mean everything about it was fun and Jacques was along he was at uh, Ginsburg's apartment and we were all just hanging out it was just great and then as far as like the actual tour and and the way the performances went and the way the camaraderie developed how did all that work well we, we got on these different vehicles I think Bob had this Cadillac Eldorado that he liked to drive and he also had a motorhome that he drove around in and we had a, a GMC motorhome called the Green Machine it was really <laughs> fun and then we had Frank Zappa's bus called Fido which was spelled uh, <laughs> like the French way <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was one of the first tour buses I'd ever seen that was uh, equipped with a suite in the back and bunks in the middle and couches and a galley. And it was it had TVs and everything. it was really amazing. So we just uh, bombed up the East Coast. and We went to Plymouth and the, the leaves were all turning. And it was so beautiful and romantic. And it was just really fun. It was just really fun. What kind of stuff were you playing on the tour? What was your little set list like? Well, I played Chestnut Mare, and then uh, Jacques and I wrote a song called The Jolly Roger. I was doing that, and I was doing Eight Miles High, and Joan Baez would come out and dance with me on Eight Miles High, and that was amazing, because <laughs> it was so uncharacteristic of Joan. I mean, you think of her as like the queen of folk music and sort of uh, very conservative and stayed, but she'd come out, and she's doing like these really wild dances with me, <laughs> and... Uh, it was great. It was, and we were, you know, all hanging out in the bus after the show. I remember Joni Mitchell was along, and she was writing songs. She wrote a song called "Coyote," and there was a, yeah. a scene in the, yeah, a scene in the movie where we were at Gordon Lightfoot's house, and she's showing the song to Bob and me, and we're trying to keep up with her. And it was about Sam Shepard. She just had a little fling with him, and <laughs> it was her breakup song. Hmm. It's funny because the guy in the song is presented as like a rancher, not a playwright, but you know, <laughs> close enough, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> we were just talking with Louis Kemp about where Bob's head was at during that tour. I mean, you, you'd known Bob through many phases. What did you make of where he was personally and artistically at that point on that tour? Well, I had never seen him happy. He was really happy. He was having a great time. He was singing whatever folk songs he wanted to sing, and he was at the top of his game. His vocals were excellent. His rhythm was tight. He was playing great guitar. And the 10-piece band that he assembled was really... We're having some phone issues. Andy, my favorite part of the whole movie, I was going to say, was Patti Smith. Yeah. And it's funny, it's somehow the chronology is hard to get in your head that there's Patti Smith when you're still kind of in, in an earlier a mode. brand new star. Horses, by then, it had just come out, and she was a new hot thing. But it was a real generational thing, because she was like the new guard in town, you know, and Dylan was the old man at like 34 or whatever. There's an extraordinary performance by her. You're watching the performance, and the camera, very fortunately at the end, kind of like pans over to a deep in thought 
Dylan, you know, it's and that you know the implication I think within the movie and I think in reality is that it helped him raise his game to see someone like a, a young gun out there. Yeah, and he really respected Patty, and they stayed close for a long time. He brought her on her first comeback tour in '95 and really nurtured her. The thing that absolutely cracked me up and I think it's my actual favorite moment in the whole movie is when Patty just starts on an absolute flight of fancy poetry when they're just in conversation she's talking yeah. about like a diamond on a baseball diamond and rolls and the kids roll the diamond around and she just goes yeah. on this rap yeah. and she out poets Bob she out Dylan's him and you can see him being like oh this is what it feels like yeah. so it's like like she was just being so freaky that he was the square one in that moment and you could tell I think anyone else it would have annoyed him but instead he was kind of impressed yeah it, it sort of reminded me of the scene in um <laughs> <laughs> in Dark Knight Rises when, when Catwoman like disappears and Batman's like so that's what that was like it yeah. was, it was exactly <laughs> like that so I think we have Roger McGuinn back we do hey Roger uh, hello I'm, I'm here I love that scene where Patty's on stage at Gertie Spoke City and she's talking about this archer and he goes into a different dimension and goes to, you know she's just rapping like crazy I'm like wow man I didn't know she could do that <laughs> no it's it's far out and, and, and you could tell Bob was really admiring it but, and, and, oh, yeah. And speaking of the movie, Roger, now the first time that you saw it, did you know that there was going to be weird actors in it that were telling fictional stories, or did that just blindside you? I, that was totally... I said, I didn't remember Sharon Stone being on... I think I would have remembered her being on the tour. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I found a website that had all the things that weren't real, and that was one of them. And the... Uh, what, what's his name? Van Van uh, Dorp. Dorp. Yeah, yeah, and, and turns out to be Midler's husband, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. And so he's making up all this stuff about how he shot the B-roll and used his own money to do it and all that. Yeah, pretty interesting. Oh, and and then he was worried about me bugging him. <laughs> <laughs> I used to have some wireless mics and I'd stick them under the bed, you know, some places. And, just for fun. Oh, and, oh uh, wow. So yeah. Bob was onto something there, huh? Yeah, yeah, he knew about that. <laughs> <laughs> and so how do you feel about Scorsese's choice to put actors in the movie that were telling stories about the tour that weren't real? Do I, you, mm-hmm. No, I liked it. I thought it was really amusing. and it, it sort of spiked the whole thing up. It's not just a, a documentary about a tour. It's got some fictional stuff that's interesting. I thought it was interesting. How well overall did you feel it captured the whole thing? I thought it did great. I thought they cut Bob at the top of his game. He's really singing great. He was really playing great. You know, he was happy. I mean, look at all the, the smiling Bobs that you see in the thing. That's not always the way he <laughs> looked when he's on stage. So I thought it was wonderful. It was just, and I loved Scarlett Rivera in it and Bobby Newworth as a, a sidekick and Rob Stoner did a great job. He's really wonderful. Bob obviously had a lot of modes uh, still does and you know there's a lot of the the sort of trickster in him and there's a lot of sort of evasiveness and it seems like it's, it was always hard to get like a straight answer out of him and how often were you able to just kind of have a, a straight ahead conversation with him in your time with him especially during that period and how often were there kind of like games being played or, or something off going on? Well I was able to communicate with him pretty well. He used to come over to my house when we both lived in Malibu and you know we jam and play guitars and stuff and it was a pretty straight-ahead conversation. It wasn't like uh, trying to trick you into different games and so on. And I remember he took me for a ride in this motorhome. It's the one where he says, I hope we make it to Boston on time. It's like that. <laughs> it was just me and him in the front of the motorhome, and he's wearing dark sunglasses and, you know, prescription sunglasses, and it was getting dark out. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> wow, this is interesting. <laughs> but we had a good time, and he was very nice. You know, we got along okay. 
So, What do you think he was getting out of that tour? What was making him happy about it? Well, I think it was the antithesis of the tour he'd just been on with the 20,000 theaters and kind of big business. Paul Rappaport from Columbia Records was a guy who told me, Roger, there's always been a balance between art and commerce. And in 1975, the commerce was overtaking the art. There yeah. wasn't a whole lot of art out there. And so Bob was trying to put the art back into it. And that was what the whole thing was about. I think that's a pretty important point because, right, in 75, the business was becoming as corporate as it had ever been. And, you know, he had just done the Age of the Big Money tour was there yeah. the tour he had done with the band which mm-hmm. i you know i think actually had his merits i loved the live album from it but was kind of a modern tour you're being whisked from arena to arena and whisking piles of money along with it but like rolling mm-hmm. thunder was a return to at the risk of being cliched it really was a return to some of the idealism of the 60s or at least the dream of the 60s and i wonder how conscious you guys were of that as an idea for the thing well it was something that occurred to me after the fact but i loved it It, every part of it was fun for me and it was like the village it was like the days in the early 60s where we were all hanging out at coffee houses and passing the hat around like the you know the gaslight and uh, different coffee houses the cafe and stuff you know it was like that it was uh, that feeling and then we went to Ginsburg apartment in the village and hanging out and Helen wanted to be a rock star you know he was singing and Denise was playing guitar behind him and you know he was just having a blast and everybody was loving it especially Bob what did you make of the sort of thing between him and, and Baez both musically and then the, there's this scene in the movie that was done for like Ronaldo and Clara clearly where everything they're saying is factually accurate but they're also clearly not it's not a real conversation I mean these are two people you know who had an intense musical relationship had had an intense romantic relationship. God knows what was actually going on in the tour as well. It's just a complicated thing. So what did you make of all that? I loved it. I've uh, seen Ronaldo and Clara a number of times, and and Sarah was really a good sport about playing, you know, and she was a lady in white, and then Joan was a lady in white, and you didn't know which, but when Bob and Joan played together and sang together, it was like old times, and there was a chemistry there that you hadn't seen in a long time, and I think there was forgiveness, there was like, you know, you might have broken my heart, but I forgive you, I love you anyway, and you know, it was just a really good feeling. So do you think Ronaldo and Clara is sort of unfairly maligned as a movie? Well, it was really long, first of all, you know. (laughs) So it was hard to sit through. But for me, it was home movies. I knew everybody in it, and I've Mm. been to all the locations, and I enjoyed it. And there were some really good performances in it. And I think Scorsese really got some good stuff out of the footage that was shot. And as I was saying, that Bob was really at the top of his game vocally, instrumentally, and mentally. I mean, he was just having so much fun with it. And, uh, yeah, Ronaldo and Clara was a little tough to sit through. And were you on a 76 tour also? Because I've heard that was a bit less fun and the spirit of the whole thing, it was dissipated by 76. Yes, I was. I was on that and we played the Astrodome in, in Houston, is that where that is? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Willie Nelson was on stage. And I didn't know Willie Nelson at the time. I don't think he knew who I was. <laughs> we're on the same microphone and we're looking at each other like, like, who are you? You know, <laughs> so what are you doing here? <laughs> now, did 76 feel different because you're playing big venues and it's sort of not the same, yeah. like sort of the, the gypsy caravan thing of 75? Yeah, but 
wasn't the you know, free-flowing thing that we've done before. I, I understood because Bob spot of money. We stayed at resorts everywhere we went. Like, there are 100 people on the road. You couldn't fit them into a regular hotel. There were first-class resorts with you know golf courses and swimming pools. And man, he spent a fortune on the first leg of Rolling Thunder, and it was a great pleasure to be on it. But um, he had to recoup the money somehow. Were you like paid for the first <laughs> portion of Rolling Thunder? I'm genuinely wondering because I'm not sure how organized like a business proposition it was in, in 75. I made a bulk deal, like for a bulk amount out front. You know, they, they're going to pay me so many thousand dollars and I'm going to do the tour. Gotcha, gotcha. I asked this earlier, but I mean, what were some memories of that tour that weren't in the movie that you might sort of wish that they were as far as the Scorsese movie? Some of the uh, scenes on the bus, I don't think he got that feeling on Fido. I remember Allen Ginsberg was uh, quitting smoking and he'd written a poem about it and he's doing this whole thing. And then Joan was interviewing Ramblin' Jack Elliott and he was doing these things from the movies and he's going through a whole rap session. The things that didn't get in there that I remember very well. In fact, I made a tape recording, like a cassette recording of, of Ramblin' doing this whole thing and I gave it to Jeff Rosen, but it didn't end up in the thing. Oh, wow. On a side note, the theme song for Easy Rider, we were talking about Dylan collaborations. I mean, technically speaking, that was a collaboration between you and Dylan. Is it true that he just wrote out a first verse and said, give it to McGuinn, he'll know what to do with it. Exactly. Peter flew to New York, screened the movie for Bob, and hoped he would write the, the theme song. And Bob didn't like the ending. He didn't like that Peter and Dennis died. He thought there should have been some retribution, you know, mm. that there should have been a different ending. So he wrote, let's see, the river flows, it flows to the sea, wherever that river goes, that's where I want to be. So it was on the paper napkin. <laughs> Peter flew back to LA, came over to my house, and it was like the Holy Grail. He said, Bob wants you to have this, man. (laughs) (laughs) And I got my guitar out and I made up the tune and I came up with the last verse. All they wanted was to be free and that's the way it turned out to be. And Dennis Hopper said, hey man, what's that supposed to mean? All they wanted was to be free and that's the way it turned out to be. And I said, Dennis, think about it. And he went, oh wow, man, that's really heavy. (laughs) Well, he's right. He was right. What did you make of the song Hurricane and the Hurricane Carter part of the whole thing? Because it was certainly an injustice, and it's great that Bob got involved with it. I was thinking, though, I mean, of all the injustices there have been before and since, it's interesting that that one caught his interest so strongly, because it's not like he's been dipping back into protest too regularly. So it it really caught his fascination. What did you make of that, and how did you come to understand that? I thought it was really noble, and uh, Jacques Levy was a boxing fan, as well, and I think they wrote it together, didn't they? I think they did. I think yes, a, yeah, yeah. And we went to the prison where Hurricane was, and we did a, a set for them. We played a, a show for them, and you know, it's a very nice thing to do for the guy, and it did get him out, right? It got him off the uh, got out of prison. Yeah, yeah. And then they benefited Madison Square Garden, helped too. Yeah, I thought it was really a noble effort. I thought Scarlett Rivera. And I'd known a, a bit about her, but she came off as quite a fascinating figure in, in the documentary. If she had been a fictional character, she would have been a much more wild invention than some of the actual fictional characters in the movies. What did you think of her? She seems incredible and, and a little scary. <laughs> yeah, I thought she was a little scary, too. Yeah, it was interesting. You know, I remember Scarlett was doing some stuff, and she was into this sort of like Santeria, or, you know, like some sort of um, it's a spiritual thing, but it's not Judaism or Christianity, it's something else. And T-Bone, <laughs> T-Bone was sitting next to me on the bus and going, oh, man, this is a bus to hell. <laughs> <laughs> a bus ride to hell. 
<laughs> T-Bone was, I think, a committed Christian already. Were you already at that point? Was that your head was at at that point? No, no. I wasn't at many, many roads up the mountain, but it's all good that you could go, like, be a Buddhist or, you know, whatever, and it was all fine. I didn't deny Christianity, but I didn't, it wasn't specific, and it wasn't until later that I got into that. After Elvis Presley died, I started reevaluating my circumstances. I went, man, I better clean up my act a little bit here, and uh, this guy, Billy, who's a piano player, he prayed with me, and he said, you know, do you believe in the power of prayer? And I said, yeah. He said, okay, and he prayed with me, and nothing happened right away, but a couple of weeks later, I, I was feeling this horrible kind of anxiety, and I said, oh, God, how can I keep from feeling this? And I got in my spirit, well, you could accept Jesus. And I went, okay. And bam, it lifted off, and I've been better ever since. So mm. That was my story. Yeah, no, it's now, a, uh, it was just interesting, and you Bob, and T-Bone and Bob, yeah. Yeah, and Bob, and I believe David Mansfield and Stephen Souls as well, all accepted Jesus, which is strange. I mean, there's this whole thing in... Uh, Ronaldo and Clara, where they're down on Wall Street, and there's this guy preaching, uh, he's standing on top of a bus or something, a car or something like that. I thought, wow, that's interesting that he was doing that. I think it's Oh Sister. There's a little bit of a little Christian reference that always struck me as a premonition of the future. But anyway, we could talk all day, but uh, we're hitting the end of the show. Roger McGuinn, thanks so much for being here. I hope we can do this again soon. It was incredible. It's always great to talk sure, with you. Thank you. All right. So this has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Brian Hyatt. I was in the studio with Andy Green, and we'll be back next week here on Sirius XM's volume channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes if you can. And as always, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye.